Hello. I'm really pleased to be here to introduce Patrick Marber to you. His award-winning plays include Dealer's Choice, Closer and The Red Lion, and he's also taken liberties down the years with Hedda Gabler, The Bow Stratagem and Miss Julie. His delightful, really delightful, um, speeded-up version of Turgenev's A Month in the Country was staged here at the National Theatre in 2015. Last year, he directed Venus in Fair in the West End and Tom Stoppard's Travesties in 2016 at the Menier Chocolate Factory, New York and the West End. You'll also know him from the telly, the radio and the movies. His screenplay for Notes on a Scandal was nominated for an Oscar. And very recently, if you were paying attention, you might have noticed his turn as a prosecution barrister in the BBC's Jeremy Thorpe drama, A Very English Scandal. And um, I can reveal to you that next week there's a very um, juicy and scandalous new drama starting also on the BBC about the Gettys. It's called Trust. And I think Patrick's going to be in that too. <laughs> anyway, we're talking this evening, obviously, about his new adaptation of UNESCO's play Exit the King, which he also directs. Now, Patrick, just tell me, first of all, about your relationship with or affinity with UNESCO and why this play in particular, what drew you to it? Well, UNESCO is one of the first playwrights I ever read. Um, I was at school in the mid to late 1970s, straying into the early 80s, and at the time, absurdist theatre was still quite fashionable. Yeah. It isn't at all now. But at that time, if you were a fledgling playwright or actor or someone who wanted to make their life in theatre, which I, I knew I did from about the age of 13 or 14, I knew this, you would read Beckett and you would read UNESCO uh, and, and then all the English writers. But you, you had to know your Beckett and UNESCO. And, um, and I always found his work uh, troublesome and difficult, uh, but funny and strange. And I thought, one day when I'm a grown-up, I'll understand it better. <laughs> and uh, uh, I still find his work troublesome and strange, but there's something that I keep coming back to in UNESCO. Um, and it's to do with a particular uh, bravery, I think, in his writing, mm. that he doesn't make it easy for audiences, and he looks a subject square in the eye, uh, and I like that, and I like that he's just not working in a naturalistic world. I'm, I've sort of slightly had my fill of naturalism. <laughs> um, and when I go to the theatre now, I want to see something that can only exist in theatre, mm. something that is purely theatrical, and UNESCO gives us that. Although this play in particular, it, even though it is still, I suppose, absurd, it leans towards the classical a bit more, doesn't it? It goes mm. straightforwardly on, and there's a kind of chorus and... Yes. Even in uh, UNESCO's uh, canon of work, this is a slightly odd play. Yes. It's, it, as you say, it's a, it's a Greek classical play. Uh, it, it obeys the unities of time, place, and action. And so it's very fitting to be doing it in this Greek amphitheater. And it's, it's, he called it his, his classical tragedy. 
And it, this, in terms of it, I mean, was it the themes of the play that drew you to it? What, what made you feel that this was the one for you to tweak? Well, it's an obscure play. It hadn't been done in London in a major production since its original production in 1962 at the Royal Court. Mm. So there's the pleasure of bringing back to life something that is slightly obscure. Yeah. And I like doing that. I like doing slightly neglected works or slightly neglected writers every now and then because I feel I'm destined to become one myself. <laughs> and, uh, uh, as, as all writers are, you know, um, none of us really are going to survive, you know, one or two from my era, if we're lucky, one or two plays, not even writers, mm. in a hundred years' time. I feel, I feel very... Um, sad about um, Arthur Wing Pinero. <laughs> um, if you'd have said to Pinero, well, in a hundred years, mm. he just won't really be done. He said, no, that's impossible. I'm the most performed playwright in London. I'm, a, I'm huge. I'm Arthur Wing Pinero. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's one of the reasons I had a little, uh, a little brush with Trelawney of the Wells, yeah. is that I just... I feel sorry for these people. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I want their work, to, you know, you, you have to reiterate someone to sort of force them back into the plays that are done, the repertoire. Mm. Um, so that's a very long way of saying, I didn't want to do Rhinoceros, no. I didn't want to do The Chairs. They, they're, they're done. Uh, but Exit the King felt ripe to me. And it was my friend Robert Fox, producer, who suggested the play. I'd never heard of it. Uh, he, he produced it on Broadway with Geoffrey Rush in the title role, and Susan Sarandon playing Queen Marguerite. And he did that in 2009. And I think in about 2012, he said, you should, you should read Exit the King, I think you'd like it. Mm. And I was, at the time, looking for something to do with Risa fans, who I'd worked with uh, at the Don Mar on Don Juan in Soho in 2006, mm. 2007, and the rights weren't available in about 2012. Someone else was doing it. Uh, but I asked my agent to monitor mm. rights to Exit the King, and eventually, two years ago, they became available. And I sent the play to Reese um, in the translation by Donald Watson, which is the standard English translation, the one that was done at the court in 62. So quite cobwebby. And Reese said, oh, oh, I don't know about this. <laughs> uh, uh, what do you think? And I said, well, I'm not sure. Let's read it. Let's, let's ask the National if we can have a day at the studio and get a cast in and read the play. And we read the play and we still weren't sure. And then we read it again. And I don't know, something gradually emerged. And um, we did a sort of rehearsed reading of it. And it, was, it suddenly felt good. It felt alive hearing it out loud mm. with six actors in a room. Uh, and Ben Power, who's the Deputy Artistic Director of the National, came to that reading and sort of didn't move a muscle for an hour and 45 minutes. And I thought, he hates it, he's hating it. And at the end he said, it's, it's amazing, it's, it's so moving, it's like Beckett, but it's like, it's like Endgame, it's, 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 it's important, we must do this play. Um, I, did, I didn't know the play either, 
So I wasn't sure what you'd done, but there were no. moments when I was watching it, I could hear little bits of Marba, or what mm. I felt were Marba as opposed to UNESCO. But mm. can, I mean, can you just, when this, I'm always a bit uncertain what it means when it says in a new version by. I mean, I wonder about that process. Um, you, what do you sit down and kind of break the play open like an egg, or, or is it more a case of little, you know, stitches around the edge of the page? It's, a, re my it's a really good. There. It's a really good question, and of course, I did the version more than a year ago, mm. and I can't quite remember what's me and what's in the original. When mm. I when I watch the play, I think, did I write that? Did he write that? Or did I sort of just? slightly soup up what he wrote. So remember, I'm, I work from a literal, I don't speak French, the play's written in French. So it was translated by Simon Scarterfield, who also did Don Juan in Soho Literal. He's an actor who speaks fluent French. Mm. So he did me a literal, and I work from that and look at the French as well, because I speak enough French just to sort of be able to follow my way and get a sense of its feel. But, of course, it's written in classical French. It's a very different feel mm. in the language. Um, and when I sent it to Marie-France UNESCO, who's UNESCO's daughter, who controls the UNESCO estate, you have to run everything by her, she said, oh, it's too colloquial. You haven't found the idiom. And I said, it's impossible to find the same idiom in English. We don't have a formal English as opposed to a colloquial English, it's all kind of one, mm. one big mush. But I, did, I took heed of that and I did slightly formalise. There were some places where I had been a little too colloquial mm. and I formalised a bit more. But you enter a very strange dialogue when you adapt to play it. So it's a really odd feeling because you're communing with a dead writer um, in a very intimate way because you're following in that writer's footsteps. Mm intimately, every step of the way, why did you write that? Why not that? Why this? Why that? And you're trying to be both faithful to an imagined intention, which you know as a playwright yourself that all intentions are entirely sporadic, incoherent. Why this word over this word? Well, it feels good. It felt rhythmically good at the time, but I can't remember why, and I can't quite remember what I meant anyway but I wanted to convey a vague feeling. And so his vagueness, my vagueness on top of it. Yeah. You can't be faithful. You can't be true. You can just, you can do something that gives you the same feeling that you think he was trying to invoke in an audience, mm. and that's guesswork. Mm. So I haven't written anything new. It's not like I've written a new speech, but I've rewritten speeches. So there's a big long speech in this play about a cat. <laughs> and um, I'm sort of word for word with UNESCO there, but in my language, it would sound like cardboard if I wrote it in his language. It just wouldn't, mm. it wouldn't feel right in the English tongue. Mm. Um, so I did lots of fiddles and yes, probably took a few liberties that I felt <laughs> were necessary. Yeah. and souped up a few jokes, but it's, it's, it's his. It's, it's faithful up to a point. And um, just before we start talking about you know, your, the decisions you made as a director, 
You know, I think this plays about lots of different things, but what, what do you think is it's central? Th I mean, when, what, when people ask you about it, what mm. do you say? What's the short version of it? What's it about for you? Is it about, I mean, it, obviously it's about death, mm. but um, lots of things are about death. <laughs> I yes. mean, wh how d what, what do you feel about uh, its heart? Well, I think... I think his heart is huge, and I'm always shocked when people... Uh, it's really split people, this play mm. and this production. And I quite like doing that. That's generally the, being the case with my work over a 25-year period, that mm. not everyone likes it. And I'm OK with that. Of course, it's nice to be everyone's darling, but also it's a slightly sullying feeling to be <laughs> incredibly popular. So. I, li I like it that it's difficult and gnarly and some people hate it and some people have a transformative, sublime experience. What it's about, I think, is what it might feel like to die. It's, it's, a, it's an enactment of death in some strange ritualistic way. Mm. It's about how it feels to know you're going to die. Um, to really know, as opposed to, I mean, we all know we're going to die, but we don't really know we're going to die. When we imagine ourselves, and Freud said this, when we imagine ourselves dead, we see a body, we see our own body, maybe on a slab, maybe in a coffin, maybe in a bed. We see that, but that's not being dead. That's being a camera looking at ourselves dead. Mm. We're dead, we don't see that. Mm. So we, we can't imagine death. And I think UNESCO tries to imagine death. Mm. So it's, a, it's an extraordinary little voyage. He mm. um, sends the protagonist on and the other characters, because they're all scared to die as well. Yes. It's not just Beringer's death. It's everyone, because they're in a dying kingdom. Mm. So it's about empires as well, and mm. it's about a corrupt king, a dictator, and it's about... Uh, well, a sort of beautiful thing happens, which is this woman, the Queen, who's been quite terse throughout the play, finally sends him off mm. in a very beautiful and loving way. Mm. So it's about not just the dying, but caring for the dying. One of the things that you've done... I mean, I, when I sat down, I thought, Oh, the temptation here would be to make it a bit Trumpy mm. um, because it's, you know, a yeah. dictator. Um, you, haven't <laughs> you haven't done any of, any of mm. that, but there is one thing that's uh, very pertinent to now, which is clearly climate changes in the atmosphere, in this yes. staging. Did you know that you would do that from, from the beginning? I mean, uh, obviously that's in the writing already, mm. but it, it felt much more to the front to me. Um. Yes, I, I suppose I, I sort of pressed my, my thumb on that a little bit, and I used the phrase of a viral agent at one point to sort of vaguely reference mm. Novichok. <laughs> uh, I've never said that out loud, is that how it's pronounced? Um, Yes, every now and then, when something struck me as, as remarkably topical, I just emphasised that a little bit. So, yes, I used the phrase climate change. UNESCO doesn't. Mm. The phrase didn't mm. exist in 1960 when he was writing the play. A lot of, the, of UNESCO's play uh, references n uh, nuclear things. Mm. There's, there's 
he's writing the play in, during the Cold War, mm. and you know it's only 15 years since Hiroshima, and so there was quite a lot of that. Slightly less in my version, but nevertheless, it's there. There yeah. is a reference to bombs and yeah. Yeah. atom bombs. So, and things. Um, the you're on the biggest stage here. Normally, when I see plays on this stage, they involve giant casts and. Mm. This is a very small cast, um, so I wondered about that. It's rather nerve-wracking mm. to put this play, which in, in some ways is quite intimate, onto this huge, you know... That was, that was the pleasure for me, was when Ben Power saw it, saw the reading, we had a conversation afterwards and I said, where do you want to do this? You say you want to do it, where do you want to do it? Assuming he would say the Littleton. Yeah. He said, the Ollie! We want to do this in the Ollie, it's a massive play. I said, great. Because, <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's a lifetime ambition to direct in the Olivier and to have a play on this stage. You know, I came here and saw plays when I was a kid. Um, and to, to be on this stage was always a dream. So I wasn't going to turn it down. But also, he was right, it, it has the scale to handle this. The Littleton is a theatre I know really well and I love and have, and have worked in oft, often, but I didn't see this play as a wide play. Mm. I saw it as a play that could speak directly to the audience. There are asides in the play. The characters are allowed to address the audience in the play. This is a community space, mm. as it were, mm. and a big communal space. And I thought to do this strange, intimate play and share it with a thousand plus people a night would be an incredible challenge if you could pull it off. So I then set about casting big stage actors, you know, actors who can handle this space mm. and have uh, sufficient definition and clarity of purpose to, to hack it on this stage, because mm. not everyone can. And I got, I got a dream cast. Mm. Everyone said yes, everyone was first choice, and that was incredibly exciting. Um, and, but at the heart of it all is this incredible engine which is Reese Evans, mm. who's playing the king. I mean, it, it's a completely mesmerizing performance. You feel like you're being hypnotized by him. Mm. And somehow he's just powering, he's, he's powering. I mean, he is the power behind the throne yeah. in a way. I mean, can you just t tell us a little bit about working <coughs> with him and you know, how easily he, he reached that uh, performance? Um. He, he had the performance on day one, mm. I mean, at, at the reading, as I knew he would, because I knew he would feel the play in a powerful way, just as he did with Don Juan in Soho, that he likes a particular thing that I like too, <laughs> and it's a particular way of expression, it's a particular scale, it's a particular silliness, mm. and he... When I was writing Don Juan in Soho, this, this version of Moliere's play, me and Michael Grandage went to Reese and said, look, we're doing this thing. Uh, we haven't got a script, but do you want to be in it? And he went, yeah, all right. <laughs> no other actor I know would commit to doing a new play, script unseen. He just, he just trusted that I would write a script that he would want to act in. And so really from then, I've just, I just thought, I love this man. <laughs> um, that he would take this risk 
and do this play, which he, you saw it, he, he did it handsomely. Yeah. Um, so I just kind of knew he'd, he'd hit this play at the right angle. So it was really just in rehearsal, just adjusting him every now and then. He's so fertile with ideas. It's like, okay, you can't play all five ideas at the same time, so we're going to have to plump for the one we like best. It's that one. Mm. But he, he's free on the stage. I, I direct him close and loose simultaneously because you want Reese to be able to do his thing. If he gets an idea, you want him to be able to kind of play. Yes. Uh, so you'd have, you know, the amount of times we would do rehearse things like, oh, there's a bit where he, f he falls and they try and pull the scepter from him. It's mm. one of my favourite bits. I don't yes. know why it makes me laugh so much. It doesn't make anyone else laugh <laughs> that much, but... <laughs> but the amount of times we rehearse that in all the different ways that he could be dragged across a stage by yes. two women pulling on a scepter was, yeah, yeah. you know. Well, also because he's so kind of long and yes, and <laughs> he, look, he looks an like sort of shape. a royal stick insect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's about six foot three, yeah. six foot four. He's incredibly tall, yeah, but incredibly warm, and he's got a massive heart and soul, and he's like a. They don't make actors like this anymore, no. these sort of heroic, classical actors who can do comedy as well. Mm. It's why people compare him to Peter O'Toole or Nicole Williamson or yeah. Gambon. You know, he's got that thing that yeah. is perfect for this stage. Yeah. And I'm sure he'll do many other plays on this stage. Now, um, I don't want to sort of spoil the play for people who haven't seen it, but it does end with a very extraordinary scene which seems in some ways to be a thing apart from the rest of the play but then in another way once you've seen it it makes sense of the whole play it's an amazing coup de théâtre isn't it really it's a proper operatic mm. finale i suppose i mean uh, can you just without ruining it too much can you just explain a little bit about it because yes i, it, I just wonder how easy it, it was to make it happen yeah, the, for the first mm, 60 to 70 minutes of the play, we're in a sort of mythical kingdom, as you see, and it's kind of faintly ridiculous. It's a bit like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That's <laughs> one of its reference points, or rather, I think, Python referenced this yeah. play. It's a silly, strange, imaginary kingdom where strange, supernatural things happen, and yet real human feelings are being experienced. And if you're, actually, just to interrupt, if you're our age, it's particularly so because Derek Griffiths is in it. Yes. And I associate him so powerfully with my childhood and watching him. And yes. this feeling of a kind of toy town, that he absolutely. seemed to be, that seemed to add to that. Yes. Anyway, sorry, carry on. That's absolutely right. And that's one of the reasons I cast Derek, yeah. was that soulful association with childhood. Because this is... This set is sort of like a child's imagining of what a throne room in yeah. a big imaginary kingdom. It has an echo for me of Baron Bomburst's kingdom in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yes, yes. Um, which is the first <laughs> film I ever saw and yeah. has sort of imprinted itself on me. It's yeah, or Nog in the Nog. Yes, all these things, <laughs> are, they're, very, they're very deep for me. Yeah, they are. Um, <laughs> and... Um, what UNESCO describes in his stage directions is a throne room vaguely gothic, vaguely dilapidated. That's, his exact, that's an exact translation of what he wanted. And so I think that's what we gave 
UNESCO. It is vaguely Gothic, it is vaguely dilapidated, mm. with some sort of quasi-modern additions. But our rule was nothing that nothing is on the stage or on or in costume that couldn't be in the 1950s, sort of the era that UNESCO is kind of gestating and generating this place. So we, we don't go beyond 1960 with any prop or any thing. And I think it's a play that goes from the ridiculous to the sublime. Mm. And I've never directed a play like that before. Plays generally don't do that. It's a big, big, high-risk strategy mm. to think you can turn an audience round from one feeling to a wholly different feeling. Mm. It's sort of... Well, it has elements of Lear in it, of course, and elements of Beckett. I think this play is UNESCO's response to Beckett, to Endgame, to Godot. UNESCO writes this play at a point where he's already famous from Rhinoceros, but he hasn't written his big death play <laughs> or his big existential despair play, and this is it. Though I'd have loved to have seen the play that UNESCO planned to write, which the beginning of this play is a play um, about four kings mm. in, in a retirement home yes. for old kings. Yeah. That was his original idea, and I think that's a that very good, a good idea. idea yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very good idea, but he honed it down to one mm. king, not in a retirement home, but I think that was a good idea. But he was ill when he wrote it. He, he feared death, and he always feared death, UNESCO. He was very connected with it. Mm. I've forgotten the question, Well, Rachel. we're just talking about it, the end. Yes, the end. And, and so he says at the end... He, he gives a very specific, mysterious stage direction about what the director must achieve. And we've, we've done that pretty much as he requested, is that he wants it to... Well, he wants a kind of vanishing to occur, and I won't say more than that, but something magical. Because in the last 15 minutes of the play, we go into a totally different atmosphere, and that's why I wanted to direct the play, was that I was happily reading this sort of funny, dark farce, and then suddenly, oh, oh, it's going in a completely different direction, like an oil tanker turning round. Mm. And it's very strange. Mm. Shouldn't work. Kind of does. It disobeys all the rules mm. of how you end a play. Mm. Um, and I love it for that. You've been doing all this directing, and you're mm. so back in the theatre. My uh, analysis would be mm. that it's making you very happy doing all this directing. Mm. And that, you know, obviously these things are relative, but... <laughs> um, I mean, you, it just seems like you're on a bit of a, a roll at the moment with this, and well, that you're enjoying it. I do love directing, and, it, and I love it because it gets me out of the house. Yeah. And... It means that when I look at the beginning, when I look at a year, January, when I look at a year, a year where I'm not directing anything, all I can do is write. Mm. And, it, and a year at my desk fills me with dread mm. and fear. Now I'm not directing something. I've got, I've got three months off before I direct something again. I'm really loving being at my desk, doing some writing all alone. Mm. So, I mean, much, it's a much better balance for yes. me to spend half the year directing and half the year writing and to break up the year. Mm. And I find I'm much more productive doing mm. both 
than doing just one. And what are you going to direct next? You're allowed to say. Oh, yeah, it's been, it's been announced. It's um, part of the Pinter season. Oh, yes, of course. At the Harold yeah. Pinter Theatre, I'm doing three Pinter yeah. one acts. <laughs> OK, we have to um, end, but I just want to say thank you for listening so hard and thank you very much to Patrick.